would, grab a Bible and turn with me to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 886. You might have expected me to say Acts 21. But we're taking a little break from Acts for the Advent season. And the next four weeks we'll study the deity of Jesus. uh, And we'll do so from John's Gospel and the book of Revelation. Uh, The series title is Jesus, True God from True God. You read it earlier. Uh, It comes from the, the Nicene Creed written in A.D. 325. Uh, At the time, some insisted that the Son of God was a created being. Uh, That while being like God, Jesus couldn't properly be called God. But the assertions about Jesus in Scripture, especially in John's Gospel, uh, put pressure on the church to maintain that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. The church would read John's Gospel and they did their utmost to describe the way John spoke about Jesus. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being both in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate. And John's Gospel and Revelation demonstrate why that's an accurate description of Jesus and remains a test for orthodoxy, for a right doctrine of God. But this Advent, we're not just talking doctrine for the sake of doctrine Uh, We're we're talking doctrine, and in particular the incarnation of God the Son and Jesus' deity. We're talking about these things to serve our worship. All of heaven sings in Revelation, worthy is the Lamb. What is it about this Lamb? The incarnation of God the Son is also for our humility. What greater condescension than when God the Son takes the form of a slave. It's also for our transformation into Jesus' image. It's by beholding His glory, Paul says, that we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We need it to understand true love. A love flowing eternally between persons within the Trinity before it ever came to us. It shapes the gospel order. God comes down to rescue man, not man works his way to God. We need it for our evangelism efforts among those who still reject Jesus' deity today. Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, and Oneness uh, folks... But most importantly, we, need, we look at the Son's deity and the incarnation for the sake of knowing God. Knowing God as He has revealed Himself. Nothing is more important than knowing God. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Eternal life isn't mainly about escaping punishment. Though that's included, it's mainly about knowing God. Knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ, to know Him and to walk with Him and to enjoy His presence in all things. Our sister, Jennifer, said that she now feels the tumor in her abdomen when she lays down. Some of you saw that on Facebook. And I don't know what it's like to have something in my body screaming that things are not right and not getting better. And all I can do is cry and pray and serve. But I thank God that I can reassure my sister of Emmanuel, God with us. The doctrine of Christ's deity and incarnation is for daily life. He's with us in the joys that life offers. And he's with us in the agonizing nights of cancer. In Jesus Christ we find God himself with us. Emmanuel. That's the name Matthew's gospel attributes to Jesus John's Gospel begins with a different name, the Word. As the other Gospels are, John's Gospel is a portrait of Jesus. His purpose is clear in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Then to develop what he means by Christ and what he means by Son of God, John begins with a story about the Word. Let's begin reading in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness 
we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So John begins his story with the Word. Now some take this title as a shot against various Greek philosophies which use the term logos or word to explain the universe. Others will look to first century wisdom literature only to say that that John is sort of upping the stakes here when it comes to Jesus. Comparative literature has its place for historical contrast But plenty of evidence within the gospel itself shows John's categories and framework are coming right from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's word creates. So also here in John chapter 1 verse 3. God's word enacts his purpose to redeem the world. So also here in John chapter 1 verse 14. God's word reveals who God is. So also here in John 1.18. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God's word is his self-revelation, his personal expression in creation and redemption. But here we find that self-revelation reach its summit in the word who becomes flesh. That's why verse 17 says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The point isn't that grace and truth was never known before. Rather, God's covenant love and faithfulness in the law is now reaching its apex in Jesus. The Word made flesh. But before the Word becomes flesh, what do we learn of Him? Well, we learn first of the Word's eternal Existence. His eternal existence. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. John alludes to those famous words from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But unlike the heavens and the earth which came into being, the Word simply was. The Word never had a beginning. He never came into existence. He just was. Someone could argue, of course, and Arius once did, that verse 1 simply means he preceded creation. Not that he was eternal, not that he was God. But the immediate context shows otherwise. Look at verses 2 and 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. According to verse 3, only two categories exist in the universe. The maker and all that is made. The maker and anything that was made, he says. Those are the only two categories. Maker and angels, matter, energy, galaxies, subatomic particles, everything else. 
The word belongs to the maker category. He was not made. He simply was absolute eternal reality. A child sometimes asks, you know, Daddy, where did God come from? He didn't come from anywhere. He didn't get to be God, right? He just is and always has been. Everything else came from him. John puts the word into that category. Now, his human nature did come into being. That's verse 14. We'll see that later. But John's point in verse 1 is careful. Before there was anything made, the word simply was. Second, we learn of the word's personal communion with God the Father. His personal communion with God the Father. Verse 1, again, the second part. And the word was with God. Already, verse 3, introduced the words agency. All things were made through him. At the same time, verse 3 preserves the words godness. He wasn't made. Together with verse 1, we begin to see the word's distinct personality. He is eternal. He is creator. But John also describes him in personal relation with God. And in particular, God the Father. Uh, in John's writings, and, and, and largely the, the whole New Testament, the title God, when it's used with the article in Greek, ha-theos, that usually refers to God the Father. Uh, verse 14 will clarify this father-son dynamic by identifying the word as the only son from the Father. Uh, verse 18 helps us too by describing the son at the father's side or, or uh, other translations in the father's bosom. Uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17 verse 5 helps us as well. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And so when we read and the word was with God, it shows a personal distinction between the Word and God the Father. The Word, also called the Son in verse 14, exists in eternal relation with the Father, and their relationship is a fountain of glory and love like no other. Jesus describes it as glory I had with you before the world existed. In John 17, verse 24, again, Jesus' prayer, he says, Father, I desire, he's praying for his disciples, he's praying this for us, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Question. What was God doing before he created the universe? Loving himself. According to Jesus' prayer, 
God's love for us had a beginning. God's love for God never had a beginning. We can never say that the Father's love for the Son had a beginning. The Word or the Son forever exists in a relationship of love with the Father. And what Jesus brings out in His prayer is that this eternal divine love expresses itself in mutual glory. The Father clothing the Son in glory because the Son who images the Father's glory is His supreme delight. The true God of Scripture is a relational being, which makes him very different from, say, the single-person God of Islam. Islam teaches that Allah is a solitary monad who has unity only. He has no need of a son, they say. He cannot be a relational being, they say. But if God is a monad, he cannot be truly loving. Love is something one person has for another. Allah actually needs man to fight for his cause to express love. And so when the Quran says Allah is loving, the language of love actually disguises tyranny and neediness. But the God of Christianity needs nobody to express love. The Father loves His Son quite apart from creation. Which should amaze us all the more that he chooses to love us, rebels as we are against him, and then bring us into his love. Right? That's why Jesus prayed the way he did and he died the way he did to bring us to the God who is love. Even to enjoy the glory resulting from the Father's love for the Son. This is all John chapter 17, if if you want to read it later. I'm, I'm just using John 17 to inform how we understand this little phrase, with God, in John 1 1. It helps us know God, it helps us know His love, and it helps us know our salvation and how glorious it is. Third, we learn of the words divine nature as God. His divine nature as God. Uh, End of verse 1. And the Word was God. Now John implied the Word's deity before. Now he gets very explicit. The Word was God. So now we're we're trying to hold the first two-thirds of John 1 in in our minds. At the same time... At the end of John 1, and so what we're seeing here is the Word is both distinct in person from the Father and then one with the Father in the divine essence or being. Unless, of course, you choose to translate the verse as Jehovah's Witnesses do. Jehovah's Witnesses have the, the New World translation. You have a copy of that translation in your home. Get rid of it. The New World Translation, Unitarians will do the same. If you look at John 1.1, in their translation it says, The Word was a God. A God. 
And they translate it that way because they say, well, God, and and they're right, uh, God here doesn't have the article. It doesn't say ha-theos. It says theos. And so they feel like they're being more uh, accurate with a God. And so they will say he was a divine-like, angelic being, but he definitely wasn't the God, according to them. However, you already know that can't be a good translation from verse 3. You don't need to know Greek to, to, to figure that out. Because angelic beings were made, anything less than God was made And verse 3 says the word wasn't made. He he fits in the category of the maker, of the God category. He's not just a God, he is the creator God. Verse 18 helps as well. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. There too, the word is distinct in person. He's at the Father's side and as the only God, he possesses what's Divine Context can help here. But it may also reassure you that in Greek, the word God at the end of verse 1 is best understood qualitatively. As I said before, when God appears with the article in Greek, it's like the English the, uh, ha theos, when that happens, it regularly refers to God the Father. But John drops the article here and then he orders the sentence to preserve the personal distinction he just made. And the word was with God. Okay? Had he put the article in, that distinction would be contradicted and go away. Okay? If he kept the article, his next statement would mean the word was the Father. But that's not what he wants to say. And so he drops the article and then he orders the sentence to assert something about the son's nature rather than his identity. Let me see if I can simplify all of that jargon with a paraphrase of verse 1. I put it on the screen for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God the Father, and what God the Father was, namely God, that the Son was too. That's, that's the idea. That's what's going on there. What God the Father was, God, that the Word was too. That captures what John is asserting about the Word. He carefully maintains the distinct persons of Father and Son in the one divine essence. This is why Christians confess that God is Trinity. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, though we won't touch on the Holy Spirit today. You need to understand this to know who God really is and how God has has revealed Himself. Christians are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The triune God is our confession from the get-go in our Christian walk. Any teaching that doesn't recognize the Trinity 
or doesn't confess uh, Jesus Christ as God isn't true and it's promoting a false God. Folks say they accept Jesus all the time. I mean, Jesus is a really popular guy in our society. But if they aren't willing to call him God and they're not willing to fall at his feet and say, my Lord and my God, like Thomas does, then they don't know the true Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity once wrote, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. According to John 1.1, the Word is distinct from the Father in person, yet one with the Father in being, in Godness. And then comes one of the most remarkable sentences in all of Scripture, which leads us to one further point about the Word. The Word became flesh. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me clarify what that does not mean. Some people will go to Philippians 2, which says, Though Christ was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And they'll take that phrase, emptied himself, and say something like, Well, the Son of God renounced his divine attributes. Think omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. He, he renounced his divine attributes to become truly human. That's not true. It's not true. Sometimes it's called the kenosis theory, if you've heard it before. And that's not true for several reasons, a couple of them being it truncates the Son's deity. If God the Son renounces any divine attribute, He's no longer God. It also mistakes the person of the Son in Philippians 2 for His divine nature. Meaning, the self-emptying in Philippians 2 isn't an emptying of what's divine in the Son. The self-emptying has to do with the person of the Son taking the form of a slave, which Paul goes on to explain. 
The remarkable point of Philippians 2 is that this one who forever and always exists in the form of God, that one sets aside his rights to be seen as God and he assumes the form of a servant while still being God. Right? Baby in the manger upholding the universe by the word of its power at the same time. Nothing changed in his divine nature when he became a man. Wow, that makes the sun's humility shine all the more brightly, doesn't it? Glorious God the Son, creator of all things, worthy of all worship, and yet he chooses to serve Nobody can see his veiled glory, but he serves them anyway, even unto death on the cross. When John says the word became flesh, he doesn't mean the word forfeited or limited any of his godness. He means the word added to himself a human Nature, such that he's now truly God and truly man. This is not deity turned into man. It is not man swallowed up by deity. It is the one person of the Son with both divine nature and human nature. Truly God, truly man. And when the Word adds humanity to what he had always been before, John witnesses a peculiar glory. Glory, he says, as of an only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're spending all next week on how John witnesses God's glory in Jesus Christ. And I'll give you a clue. It's not because Jesus walked around with a halo shining brightly like some of the old paintings have, right? No, he sees in Jesus' words and works and in his cross the revelation of God. So, we'll spend all next week uh, going throughout all of John's Gospel talking about that. For now, just be amazed that God the Son took on humanity. That's an, an amazing mystery the Gospel confronts us with. That's a claim that makes Christianity unique. Our God is unlike the God of Islam who can't be closely involved with creation and his creatures. He's unlike the God of Docetism, uh, Christian science and, and others examples, who can only disguise himself as human. He's unlike the God of Deism, who, who doesn't make himself known to us. He's unlike the God of all other religions, who requires man to work his way up to God. No, our, our God condescends. Our God comes down. Our God makes himself known. Our God enters the world he made. 
He is high, but he is also near. He draws near. He identifies with our humanity. He even becomes one of us to save us from our desperate predicament. That's the gospel order the incarnation teaches. Not man works his way to God or man becomes a God, but God comes down to man. And when God the Son comes down in the person of Jesus, we can know God. And that's why John finishes the intro with, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known, or He has explained Him. Same word appears in Acts 21, actually, where Paul is reporting to them one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles. Well, Jesus Christ, when you look at Him, He reports one by one what God is like, who God is. If you want someone who tells the whole story about God, don't look to a Muhammad or a Joseph Smith or an angel from heaven or even your favorite preacher. Look to Jesus Christ. Knowing God isn't a mystery. He's not hiding from us. He communicates glory to us in His Son. He gives the written Word and He sends the living Word. If you're searching for God, don't look further than Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to know God. If you don't know God, the problem isn't that He's far away. The problem is that sin is keeping you from seeing His glory. That's how John puts it in the rest of the passage. We kind of covered the first part of the passage and the last part, but right in the middle, John is developing this theme about the world and and he compares the world to darkness in verse 5. In John's Gospel, the world represents the whole system of rebellion against God. The whole of humanity that is walking in a moral darkness. A moral rebellion against their Maker. And the moral darkness is so bad that people don't recognize their Maker. Right? Verse 10 says... This is God's Son, the Word, the light. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world didn't know Him. He came to His own, and His own people didn't receive Him. That's how bad the darkness is. It's not just that the world in general doesn't know Him, But even when God told a specific people, the Jews, who to look for, when He came, they rejected Him. That's how bad the moral darkness is. It's how thick it is over their eyes. Why didn't they receive Him? Because they love their evil deeds, John 3.19. Because they're slaves to sin, John 8.34. Because their father is the devil, John 8, 44, and because they love the praise of man, John 5, 44. That's the moral darkness. 
that will keep you from seeing God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. But if you believe in Jesus, if you embrace Jesus' claim to be God, well, John says in verse 12 that He will give you the right to become the children of God. And you know why that happened? Because He caused you to be born again. That's what verse 13 is about. So if He does His work in you by grace, and you believe, and you see Christ, and you place your faith in Him, it says He gives you the right to become children of God. That's, that's why He became flesh. That's why He, he took on humanity so that Through the cross, He would make those who were not God's children, God's children. In and through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we come to know the true God. And even better, God makes us His children. He's the light of God's glory who comes to jolt us from our moral darkness. Believe Jesus is the God who came to save you and He will bring you with Him into the Father's bosom. He will bring you with Him to the Father's side. Lastly, consider how the words humble descent compels humanity. I mean, compels humility. History knows no greater condescension than God the Son becoming a man, taking on the form of a slave. He, he set aside His right to be seen as glorious, and He became a servant. The Son doesn't cling to the place of honor, though He could. He willingly forfeits the rights to serve us, to serve our good. And Paul applies this, his condescension to, to the Christian life in Philippians 2. When he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the, if you want to call it, the true Christmas spirit. But it ought to characterize us year round. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." The glory of the Son's incarnation, as well as its goal, motivates the church to serve the interests of others. Does it motivate you? And how so? What, what does that humble spirit look like in relation to your brothers and sisters in this church? Uh, what does it look like with your spouse and with your, your children and with your parents and with your employees and with your students? 
Can they, can they see the mind of Christ producing a temperament of self-emptying to serve another's well-being? Beloved, such a mind is ours in Christ Jesus. Because the rest of Philippians says, Therefore God highly exalted him. Jesus is risen. And he is alive. And he is living in heaven. And by his spirit he is living in us. His mind is ours. If we're in him. So by grace we can now act upon it. We can now have this temperament about us of self-emptying to serve another's well-being. As we look to the Incarnation. When you eat the Lord's Supper together this morning, remember that the Word became flesh. Rejoice that God came down to save us. And then consider how the Son's humility might compel you. Ben, can you come lead us? This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.